You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 25. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. This week's guest is Mira Mehta, the founder and CEO of Tomato Joss, a tomato paste company based in Kanduna, Nigeria. You can connect with her at Shouts and Mira's and at Team Tomato Joss on Twitter. Mira was born and raised in New England in the U.S. Fresh out of college, she landed her first job at BlackRock, a large asset manager. Driven and ambitious, Mira quickly realized that she'd never have a leadership role, as her department was just a line item in the company P&L. Looking to make more of an impact, she joined the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which sent her to Nigeria. Once she was driving to Kano in northern Nigeria, and Mira saw a glut of tomatoes lining the side of the road. The quantity of rotting tomatoes was so great, so significant, that the road resembled a red carpet. The image lingered with her. Why was Nigeria, which imports hundreds of millions of dollars of tomato paste per year, not able to manufacture tomato paste locally from its domestic tomato crop. And after finishing her MBA at Harvard, Mira still couldn't shake the tomato processing idea, and she decided to bite the bullet. In 2014, Mira moved to northern Nigeria to set up her tomato processing company, Tomato Joss. Mira talks candidly about the difficulties and challenges inherent to Nigeria's agro-processing sector, why profitable farming is the key to any successful processing project, hint, this explains why Dangote's tomato paste factory rests idle to this day, the ins and outs of her outgrower program, and how she works with her investors. Plus, Mira gave one of the most thought-provoking answers to one of my favorite questions about where she traveled to in sub-Saharan Africa to improve her business, so make sure to not miss that. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mira Mehta. Mira, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Victoria. It's great to be here. And I have to say, it's actually the second time we've tried to do this. We tried to chat a couple months ago when you were still in Nigeria at your work site. And unfortunately, the internet was just not cooperating. So I really appreciate you making time again for us to chat. No problem. Connectivity issues are quite common. So <laughs> absolutely, um, it's working out the time around. I find your story very compelling because there's a lot of lip service, you know, paid to increasing investment in agro processing in Africa, but you're actually doing it. And it's pretty hard stuff. 
Yeah, it's definitely not easy. And I think it's a lot less easy than I thought it would be when I got started. (laughs) It's one of those things where I think the more you know, the more you realize that you actually don't know. And so and also sort of the more you realize, you know, what it takes to move forward, the more you kind of actually have to take a step back. And sometimes it can feel frustrating because you feel like, I can see the goal in front of me. And, you know, five years later, we still haven't launched our brand of tomato paste. And so to a certain extent, if you look at it from one angle, you could say, well, what the hell is she doing out there? You know, what she, <laughs> you know, how can she say progress? But on the other hand, you know, I've realized more and more that the processing part of it will only come and will only be profitable once the farming part be locked down. And so that's why, you know, we've doubled down to a certain extent on really trying to make sure that the farmers that we're working with can grow tomatoes at the right yields, at the right cost, in order to then enable them to sell profitably at the right price to, you know, me as a processor. So, you know, it's been really interesting, you know, to sort of realize that and say, okay, you know what, the goal of processing is still there. But until we get the farming 100% right, we have to just focus on that. Yeah, because it's like you have two businesses. You have the farming angle, like you said, which is so critical if that doesn't work. I mean, forget processing because it's not going to be economically viable. And then you have manufacturing, you have the processing angle. So it's really like you're running two businesses. Yeah, exactly. And I want each of those businesses to be profitable, you know, in an independent sort of be able to stay on their own two legs. And so what that means is that, you know, in the farming business, right, we've got farmers that we're working with trying to basically make a smallholder program profitable, meaning, you know, we're loaning them fertilizer, seedlings, chemicals, and, you know, we're providing education to them that we're pricing, you know, at a certain price. And the idea is that the value of that loan and that package of goods and materials needs to be paid back in the form of tomatoes, you know, at the time of harvest. And so firstly, that means that the farmers have to be able to grow enough tomatoes to pay back, you know, for all of the stuff that we've given them. And secondly, you know, we're pricing in this educational component, that tiny piece of the loan has to be able to cover our cost for the whole program. And so, you know, because we're not making a margin on the sale of the tomatoes in other programs, like let's say a maize outgrower program, what you'll find is that people are providing educational services to the farmers, and then they're selling for the farmers to a third party. So they might be selling to Nestle or they might be selling to Flour Mills of Nigeria or, you know, insert a large buyer. And they're taking a broker fee. They're saying, okay, in exchange for the fact that I'm making a market for you, I'm going to take 10% of the value of your goods when I sell it on your behalf. Since we're the end buyer, we're not taking an extra margin. So that means that we have to you know, we're buying tomatoes from them at the same price that I would buy from my own nucleus farm or from the open market, which means that the cost of the program has to be baked into that loan. And it has to be, you know, we're a for-profit company, so we can't continue to sort of fund the smallholder program indefinitely without it eventually being able to fund itself. And so that's been, you know, a major challenge for us is trying to figure out how do we keep our program costs down, but still deliver an effective program that enables farmers to make significant changes in their farming practices. Um, And so definitely, you know, we still have a lot of work to do in that regard, you know, and then figuring out, okay, what's the number of farmers or what's the size of land that the farmers are working on where we break even and where that program actually starts to pay for itself. Yeah, no, it sounds incredibly complex and lots of moving parts. And we're going to get into that later when we talk more about the business model of Tomato Jaws. But first, I want to focus on kind of having some understanding of your background. Sure. (laughs) Well, I'm not a farmer. (laughs) 
I have learned a lot over the last five years. My parents are both immigrants. They both moved to the U.S. in my dad in the 60s, my mom in the 70s. And my brother and I were born in Cambridge, Mass. I went to school in Massachusetts and then went to college in Rhode Island. And my first job out of school was actually working in finance. I worked for an asset management company called BlackRock. And in that role, you know, again, like very removed from farming, very removed from anything kind of having to do with a lot of impact. Really, my job was to try and create and launch mutual funds that, you know, financial advisors would sell either in to individuals or to sort of like retirement plans. So if you think about like a 401k or something like I was trying to create products that like an individual would be like, oh, I want to put my money into that. It was really different from what I do now. But the amount of investment that the company put in my learning and my education in those first two years when I was working at BlackRock, that certainly has shaped a lot of you know, my professional career and working in a large company, learning how to be professional, learning how important it is to be early to meetings, learning how important it is to be the secretary at a meeting because you end up dictating what the meeting was about, you know. Oh, that's um, a great point. How to, <laughs> yeah, you know, learning how to sort of be the smallest person in the room, but somehow exert control. Those are all lessons that I ended up taking with me, you know, when I moved to Nigeria in 2008. Well, and I'd love to know, how did they formally invest in your education at BlackRock? Well, so things like, you know, we had an analyst training program, right, where we learned about, I actually, you know, it was kind of random how I got a job in finance because I was a community health major. I had never taken a business class. I was smart at math, but, you know, didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. I remember bombing an interview with like Lehman Brothers at some point. They were like, you know, do you think that the Fed should increase or low or decrease the rate? And I'm like, well, I don't know who the Fed is. I'll get back to you on that. And they were like, okay, rejected. <laughs> So, you know, first and foremost, a lot of what the analyst program did was bring me up to speed on, you know, on financial terms, on, you know, how to price a bond, on what stocks are, on portfolio theory. You know, we were all encouraged to sit the CFA examination. So I did the first two levels of the CFA while I was at BlackRock, and they did provide some level of sort of educating and support for me to be able to take classes and take time off to study and stuff like that. And then, you know, there's just a lot of training on how to use Excel, training on how to use PowerPoint, you know, beyond the sort of on the job learning that my boss and my team gave me, you know, in terms of here's how to do your job. And so I think that kind of structure and that kind of formal education on tools that are really important in a lot of business settings was super valuable. Yeah, no, that sounds indispensable. And tell us, how did you get from the U.S. to Nigeria? What was the path? <laughs> so I started to feel pretty disenchanted with the work that I was doing at BlackRock. Why I, was that? I liked the salary. Well, you know, it was a combination of things. So, you know, first and foremost, there was, you know, I was a young and aggressive analyst who wanted to sort of, you know, become a leader in the company. But in finance or in asset management in particular, the two sort of paths to leadership are either through sales or through, you know, portfolio management when you're actually picking the stocks that are going into the funds. And I was on a marketing team. I felt like, you know, we're just a line item in SGNA. I don't really matter. And there's a limit to where I can go and how far I can go into this company because my core skill set and the skills I'm developing are not driving the business business, right? They're ancillary to the business. Mm -hmm. So there was that sort of dissatisfaction from my side. I think I've always been a pretty competitive and like driven person. You know, I've always wanted to sort of be in a leadership position. I didn't see a pathway for that in the job that I was in. And then, you know, that combined with the fact that we, my friends and I made a trip to Kenya in 2007 
And it just struck me, you know, there was a lot of poverty. My dad is Indian, so I've, you know, seen a fair amount of poverty before, but we went to go visit an orphanage and the kids were all orphaned by HIV. And there was just a lot of sort of stuff going on in my head where I was like, you know what, I majored in community health. Like, (laughs) I could actually be using all these skills that I've learned at BlackRock to help somehow in a more constructive way than just, you know, going to visit an orphanage and like giving a donation or something like, you know, I have more to offer than just a random, you know, $50 here or $100 there or whatever it is. And so that got me thinking about, you know, what kinds of jobs could I have that where I would have a more direct impact on you know, alleviating poverty or alleviating sort of the illness that comes with poverty. And that led me to the Clinton Foundation in the spring of 2008. So I ended up applying for a position there. It took a couple months to sort of get through the interview process. But once I did, the country team that organization chose for me was Nigeria. They were like, okay, well, you know, is there anywhere that you wouldn't be comfortable going? And I said, no, you know, anywhere you want is fine. They're like, okay, great. You know, there's an opening in Nigeria. And so I didn't really know anything about West West Africa, Nigeria, really anything about Africa at all, besides my safari experience. And I was like, okay, you know, are there animals there? No. (laughs) Is there a beach there? (laughs) Not really. Like, okay, well, I'll still do it. You know, that sounds cool. And that's, you know, kind of how I left the US for Nigeria. And how long were you at the Clinton Foundation? It was the Clinton Foundation when I first moved there, but they actually kicked out the health part of the foundation a year in because CHAI, what came to be known as the Clinton Health Access Initiative, was so much bigger than the rest of the foundation in terms of its budget, in terms of its number of employees. And it was so different from, for example, the Clinton Presidential Library or the Clinton Global Initiative or, you know, the other Clinton Obesity Initiative that it needed to be governed by a different board. So the Clinton Foundation, which I joined, turned into the Clinton Health Access Initiative, and I ended up being there for four years. So for two years, I was based in Nigeria, only working on HIV-related work in the country. And for two years, I was on a technical team that did much more narrowly focused work, but in a broader array of countries. So I ended up working in about 15 different countries, still based in Nigeria, but traveling quite frequently across the continent. Okay. And what were your major takeaways from working there? Well, a bunch of things started to sort of come into focus for me, I guess, is the way I would put it. You know, when I was working in Nigeria, I would go to these, you know, we would go to a lot of hospitals. I was doing a lot of work with general hospitals and smaller clinics. And it just felt to me like, okay, you know, here we are coming to try and see if the pharmacist is able to, you know, renew their inventory supply of this particular drug or if the doctor knows that it's available and they can prescribe it or you know whatever it is sort of like trying to take away logistical barriers to getting better medicine into the hands of patients but you know what i was always struck by was all of these mostly women and kids are waiting here for hours and hours and hours on you know hiv day or on clinic day you know what have they given up to be here waiting in line you know how long did it take them to get from their house to this place you know are they at risk of losing a job are they at risk of you know losing out on income are they spending money to do this then won't enable them to pay for their kids school fees you know what's the trade-off between them coming here and waiting all day to see the doctor versus not. And that seemed to me something that I was more passionate about trying to solve than making sure the medication is there when they get to the clinic. And so I felt like, you know, if people were just less poor, 
they could make better choices or if they had better employers, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have to, you know, be at risk of losing their job because they went to the doctor for a day. And, and there's a story about that that I've told a couple of times, but basically, you know, I used to do some volunteering at HIV support groups. And I remember very, very clearly one support group that I went to in Guadalajara, which is near the Abuja airport. This guy was a baggage handler. He said his wife was diagnosed with HIV. He wanted to do the right thing and get a diagnosis and see if he had it too. Well, the result came back inconclusive. So they said, you have to come back in six weeks and get tested again. He went back to get tested a second time. One of his colleagues found out that he had gone to get an HIV test, not even that he was HIV positive, but just that he'd gone to get a test and he was immediately fired from the job. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, you know, it just felt like, and he's like, the second test was inconclusive. I still don't know if I have HIV and I don't have an income anymore. And how am I supposed to support my wife who does have HIV? And it just felt like those are the kinds of problems that I want to solve. I want to just be a good employer. I want to create an environment that encourages people to go and get health care. I want to pay fair wages and make it easier for people to live because Nigeria is a tough place to live for a lot of people. And so, you know, that kind of was the second thing that sort of came into focus for me. And I think the third thing for me was that, you know, as government porters, you know, we were we always worked through the government. And that's probably because Clinton was a politician. So, you know, they didn't want to do anything that was not lock in step with the Nigerian government or whatever government that they were operating in, whatever country they were operating in. But we would have these problems where our grants would run out. Right. So we would say, okay, we're going to solve this particular problem related to pediatric HIV. Five years later, we wouldn't have finished solving the problem, but we'd be like, well, sorry, the money ran out, but we can solve this problem for you. And we'd have to go back to the same, you know, ministry team and say, sorry, we couldn't finish the other one, but let us do this one now. And that felt to me disingenuous and, you know, demoralizing. It's like, well, why would the government have any trust in us if we keep sort of not quite finishing what we say we're going to finish, but then trying to sort of move them and move their policies in another area. It's like, well, we haven't, you know, gained the credibility and the trust to really be able to do that. And so it felt to me like what I wanted to do was, you know, drive change, drive economic growth through a means that would enable me to have more control over what I was doing and sort of more consistency in my mission. Um, And it seemed to me like the best way to do that would be through a private sector approach by running my own company. And those are kind of a few of the things I saw that steered me in the direction of, I want to start my own company. Mm. And so the big question is, what was the backstory of picking tomatoes and tomato processing? (laughs) You know, if I knew then what I know now, I don't know that I would have done tomatoes. Tomatoes are (laughs) really, really hard to grow. They're a much more technical crop than almost any other crop. Why is that? Is it just because they're very fragile? That they it's because they're, yeah, they're very fragile. They're very perishable. They're extremely sensitive to all kinds of things. They're sensitive to temperature. They're sensitive to disease. They're sensitive to soil. They're sensitive to water. Like if it rains on a tomato, you can ruin the tomato just because like the skin is so soft. Like they're like peaches, right? Mm. But they're consumed way more than peaches, you know? Yeah, or, I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, they bruise really easily. They get moldy. They get, oh God, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> But regardless, okay, maybe you wouldn't have picked tomatoes had you known how complicated, but why did you? Yeah. 
Well, that was also kind of a random thing. But, you know, because I had a lot of different ideas for businesses that might make sense in Nigeria based on the fact that I'd been living there. And, you know, one of the mentors that I had when I first moved in was Sim Shigaya, who ran up until relatively recently the online sales company Konga. And he's a serial entrepreneur. He had gone to Harvard Business School. I ended up going there as well. And, you know, he and his best friend, you know, saw every problem in Nigeria as an opportunity. They're like, everything that doesn't work in this country, there's money to be made by being able to make it work, right? And so that was kind of the lens through which I saw a lot of challenges in Nigeria, infrastructure challenges, power challenges, you know, market challenges, whatever you want to say. The tomato thing specifically came about because a couple of reasons. First, when I used to travel around northern Nigeria, I remember pretty distinctly one time going up to Kano with the driver for the Clinton Foundation, and we drove past all these, you know, tomatoes drying on the side of the road. And visually, it was really dramatic because it looks like you're driving on a red carpet like the tomatoes are on the side of the road but they're lining the road for like miles and miles and miles and i think that in retrospect it was probably just like a freak oversupply which happens every few years but it's really stunning to behold and it sort of seemed crazy to me that you know all these tomatoes the farmers just have to dry them because they can't sell them because they're just worthless because the price has crashed and it's like well it took them you know they spent resources trying to you know grow these things and now they can't get any money for selling them so that was like this one weird market anomaly that sort of struck me and then as i was learning about nigerian cuisine and you know how to cook some nigerian recipes tomato paste was something that came up again and again as an ingredient in stew as an ingredient in jollof rice and i was like well wait a second you know there are all these tomatoes getting produced how come when i look at the back of the label everything is coming from china you know what's going on and so it was this basic you know seemingly obvious there's a big demand for tomato products there seems to be an oversupply of tomato at some times of the year you know why can't we marry those two and you know sort of fulfill our own supply with or fulfill our own demand requirements with local supply and so that sort of concept came to me quite early in Nigeria and then I learned about you know all these tomato factories that had shut down in the 90s and you know, it's like, well, it seems like there are even some assets here. Like, why can't we just get the assets up and running again and, and start producing? And so that idea became this weird pipe dream for me where I would be like, oh, you know, my job at Clinton is hard. Like, I'm just going to quit and start my own tomato company, <laughs> which, you know, then eventually followed me to business school. And, and my friends were like, you're still talking about this tomato thing. Like, why don't you do the numbers and see if it actually works? Because, you know, in 2013, when I was in my second year of school, Dangote started, you know, putting a big PR splash out about how he was building a, a tomato paste factory in Kano, which was exactly what I had said I wanted to do back in 2008, 2009. So at that point, I was like, well, maybe it actually is worth looking into if the richest man in Africa thinks there's money to be made here. He's probably right. Mm. And what were your initial findings when you were looking into it um, while you were at business school? Well, so when I was at business school, I basically said to myself, for me to be able to do this full time and not as a project, I need to prove that it's financially viable, that it's operationally viable, and that it's politically viable. And so for, you know, about six, seven months, I put aside recruiting, I turned down 
job offers that I'd received. And I focused really on trying to sort of see if those three things panned out. And what it seemed to be was, you know, yes, it can work. You know, the most important thing, which I learned, you know, by going out to visit a bunch of different tomato processors in California and talking to some guys in Italy, they were like, the most important thing is to make sure that you have the right quality tomatoes and you can buy them at the right price. Processing is not that difficult. It's not really changed in the last 60 years. It's the kind of just, you take a tomato, you boil it down, and you sort of like get rid of the seeds and skin, and that's it. And then you have tomato paste. Okay, yeah. You know, it's not like super hard to do. But the hardest part of it is that it's very, very energy intensive. So it requires a lot of steam energy and it requires a fair amount of electricity. And if you cannot run your factory at capacity, then you cannot make money making tomatoes into paste. And so you need to make sure that your supply chain is really, really, really well locked up before you endeavor to take on a processing business. Mm. And that was the sort of lasting impression that all of these processors gave me. They were like, if you can't guarantee, you know, at least 80, 85% capacity in your factory for at least 45, 50 days in a row, forget it. Like you're not going to make money as a processor. And how long is the tomato season in Nigeria? So it depends on where you are in the country. There are tomatoes grown all year round in different parts of the country. But again, for me, I care mostly about, you know, I need to be able to buy at the same price for every day that I'm processing. All over the world, tomato processors really only are active for, let's say, somewhere between 60 and 100 days. So that's in like Spain and California, in China, in Tunisia. Tomatoes, you know, are seasonal. And so there's usually like a three to four month window when they do really well in the ground. And so in Nigeria, that season is the harvesting season is about from mid-December, early January through the middle of March. And so that's really when we're targeting processing. We want to process in that time period only. And we don't want to process outside of that time period. Not to say that you can't grow tomatoes outside of that time period. But again, the costs of growing will increase as you move into less and less favorable weather conditions because you're going to lose more fruits to disease. You're going to lose more fruits to rain. You're going to lose more fruits to mold and other things like that will increase your cost per ton of production above a threshold at which a processor will be willing to buy. So, you know, the fresh market might be willing to pay high prices in July and August for tomatoes. But me as a processor, I would not be willing to pay those prices. Hmm. Well, and kind of as we talked about in the beginning, you know, this has been almost a five year journey for you. And you've been really doubling down on the farming. And I mean, I advise all of our listeners who are interested in agriculture, agro-processing to follow Mira's Twitter account and also Tomato Joss's Twitter account, because you will learn a lot about tomatoes and also just <laughs> too much, probably. <laughs> but no, but I love the fascinating details about the storage about how do you transport your tomatoes to market? How do you work with farmers? How do you work with the inputs? Building your infrastructure, which has been fascinating to watch. I mean, it's again, you know, just returning to this idea that it's incredibly complex what you're doing and it's just the farming, you know? And you've said before that there's really no silver bullet to increasing yields. Yeah, I have said that a lot because I think that a lot of times people really just want to hear something, you know, they want to hear an easy answer, an easy fix. But the challenge is that so, you know, Nigerian agriculture 
I would argue is probably 60 to 70 years behind American agriculture. Part of that is because of infrastructure. So in the US, if you have something that breaks down, it's very, very easy for you to go and get it fixed. You know, you can drive, you know, within half a day, your tractor can be back up and running, your irrigation system can be back up and running. In Nigeria, even just the fact that it takes physically a longer amount of time to get to wherever you need to go to the market. And then there's less of a guarantee that the part that you need is going to be either there at all or genuine if it is there. That might lead your downtime to be more like two or three days as opposed to half a day. And so things like that, even beyond you know the other elements of farming, which I'll get into, really put Nigeria at a disadvantage for farming and you know even regular manufacturing too. Is there a country on the continent who that can be a source of inspiration for Nigeria? Nigeria that maybe is making baby steps. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think that Kenya has done a really amazing job with agriculture, even Ghana closer to home. You know, there is this one I'm so impressed with always called Blue Sky. And it's a fresh fruit company. Essentially, what happens is this company sources mangoes, pineapples, coconuts and other exotic, you know, papaya, other exotic fruits from local farmers all across the country. The fruit gets in the door by 9 a.m. They have these huge chilling rooms and cutting rooms, and they actually do all the slicing by hand. They made a conscious choice to use high labor and low machinery, so they have a lot of intensive training programs for their staff. But they cut all of these fruits to size, package them in Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's or, you know, Whole Foods packaging with the price tags already on them. And by, you know, 7 p.m. that evening, the same pineapple that came in from the bush into the facility is packaged up, you know, a plastic container and loaded onto a British Airways plane and flown into England overnight. And by the next day, let's say 30 hours after it's been picked, that fruit is actually in a distribution center ready to go to a Tesco's. It's an amazing system. It's been working for decades. And, you know, it shows that this kind of thing is possible. Again, you know, the roads are good enough that fruit can get to the, the facility quickly and that, you know, the finished products can get to the airport also quite quickly from the processing, you know, from the sort of fruit cutting center. It's also an exercise in government's controls because it's possible to, you know, export a full load of fresh fruits within a day of them being picked. Nigeria's customs and, you know, importation and export processes are not that efficient. And so it's very difficult to export perishable products, you know, in a way that doesn't have them spoil. How long would um, it take in Nigeria? <laughs> I have a friend who she's also an entrepreneur who does fruits and things like that. And she started selling her products on Amazon. Oh, is this real fruit? Yes, this is real fruit. So okay, Ashley cool. is a, a yeah. good friend of mine. And we sort of inspire each other and talk to each other on an almost daily basis because although the specific challenges we sometimes face aren't exactly the same, our businesses are similar enough and, you know, our goals are similar enough that we're often able to help each other problem solve. But she tried to sell on Amazon the first time around. She had a fixer who was helping her get stuff through, you know, to export. And I think it took like two weeks. (laughs) And this was a plane that was flying to, you know, Port Authority. And actually in a freak 
terrible thing that happened to her, the fruits and nuts, you know, that she sent over there ended up getting Dolan out of Port Authority and she lost the whole consignment, which, you know, that might be a reflection of U.S. customs and not Nigerian customs. But getting things out of the country is really hard. I mean, we've never tried to export yet, but the importation process, you can bet your bottom dollar that it'll take at a very, very minimum two weeks to get something inspected at the ports in Lagos and brought out and then another, let's say, week seven to 10 days to get it from Lagos up to Kaduna, just because of how bad the roads are, because of how clogged up the ports are, because of the fact that if you're not willing to pay, you know, to have your thing inspected, you're always going to just be queuing in the line. They're going to be like, oh, we had to inspect a different container today because somebody else was paid to have their container moved to the top of the list. And so as long as things like that continue, it's just really makes it hard to become efficient at, you know, an export business or something like that. Mm. Well, and, you know, I want to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, about your outgrower model. Yes. And just (laughs) walk us through, you know, the over the last almost again, five years, you know, you've really been refining your outgrower model. And again, it's pretty complicated stuff. So walk us through it. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we learned or that I learned, you know, interviewing and talking to all these processors in other parts of the world is that they have growers on contract. They don't just go to the open market and buy tomatoes when tomatoes are cheap. But every day they plan out how many days of production their factory is going to do. They know what the capacity of their factory is. And they say, okay, you know, every day between my start date and my finish date, I need to be able to get my hands on this many tons of tomatoes. So then they go out with that knowledge to different farmers and say, hey, will you contract to sell to me you know, this quality of tomato, I will tell you which type to grow, I will tell you the days, you know, which they need to be ready for harvesting. And their contracts that they sign are extremely detailed down to I'm going to plant on this day, I'm going to plant this variety, and I'm going to be ready to sell you my tomatoes at any time between this date and this date. And that enables them to sort of then plan for how they're going to fill the capacity of their factories. In Nigeria, these concepts are really, really foreign to farmers. Even if you um, have experience with contract farming, you probably don't have experience with the timing of that sale, right? So, you know, you might have a maize farmer or a rice farmer that is used to selling to an off-taker, but they wouldn't necessarily say, I'm going to sell to you, you know, within this one-week time period, and I promise you my stuff will be ready at that time. And again, because tomatoes are perishable, that changes the dynamics quite a bit. So what we've, you know, do in order to make sure that the farmers we're working with actually can fulfill their end of the contract is that we help them a lot throughout the season. So, you know, what I was talking about earlier today in this podcast, basically, we say to the farmers, look, we're going to provide you with a package of goods and services. You and our company are going to agree on the value of this, right? So we're going to provide you with this many seedlings, this much fertilizer, approximately this much chemical, although we're going to review it and revise it at the end of the time period based on what chemical you actually need, based on basically what pests actually end up coming into the, you know, into the field. We're going to give you this many educational sessions. We're going to give you this many extension service sessions, meaning like we're going to come to your farm this many times throughout the season. And this is the value of all of those things. Then on the other side of it, we say, okay, we expect that with this much inputs, with this much education and support, your field should be able to produce this many tons of tomatoes, right? The value of, you know, 
the tomato, we're going to, again, agree mutually is whatever price it is. I think this last year we said that the value of the tomatoes that we were going to price them at was 38,000 naira per ton. Even there, you have to sort of equate that into a per basket price because most farmers don't think in tons, they think in baskets. Baskets have a large variation, but we usually go with about a 70 kilogram basket, which is what we call the quote unquote big basket or the Legos baskets. And then you say, okay, this is the price of the, you know, the tomatoes that we're going to agree on. And then we say, okay, so that means you need to deliver us this many baskets of tomatoes. And then the rest of the tomatoes, you can do whatever you want with them. If you want to sell them to us, you can. If you want to sell them in the open market, you can. It's to you. And so the first year that we did this, we had two farmers. It was not this in depth. The farmer's crops ended up failing because like cows trampled them. (laughs) So that was disappointing. The second season, we worked with four farmers of whom one dropped out halfway through. He was like, this is way too much work. I don't want to be doing this. I can't take this much time, you know, from my other income activities and whatever, and I don't want to do this. And the other three farmers did not end up making back even enough tomatoes to cover the cost of their loans. So we ended up basically just forgiving their loans. The third year, we had 10 farmers. We did five farmers in a group and then five farmers as individuals. And One of the farmers ended up out of the 10 being able to pay off his loan. A lot of the things that we were doing wrong in these early years were that we were trying to make the protocol of what you do over the course of the season match what our nucleus farm was doing over the season. So on a nucleus farm, we'll actually fertilize every week. We'll weed every week. We'll do a lot more stuff a lot more often. But what we realized with the farmers was that they don't want to do that much. And if we ask them to do that much, they can't comply with the protocol. So we started consolidating down. We said, okay, instead of fertilizing every week, we're going to have you just do five fertilizer applications over a 12-week time period. We've actually now changed that to only three fertilizer applications. Instead of doing different types of fertilizer, we're going to have you just use the same thing over and over again. Instead of, you know, weeding every week, we're going to have you weed only three times in the season. And so we've really tried to consolidate the number of things that they have to do over the course of the season, which puts a limit to the upside of the yields they can get because they're, it's much more rough and less nuanced than what we're trying to do on the nucleus farm, but also enables them to have a much higher likelihood of, of actually complying with what we're trying to do at all and not just giving up. And so in this last year, We really, really, really simplified it down. We ended up working with 35 farmers and all of them but three were able to fully pay back their loans. And the average profit margin for all the 35 farmers was about 17.5% after paying back their loans and after all their non-loan expenses. So this was really the first year that we've actually had any success at all, (laughs) which we're really excited about because it means that, you know, finally after three years of trying and not really getting the results that we wanted to see, we are able to refine and improve, you know, our education program and our, the way that we work with the farmers to see some success. No, that's incredible. And it just goes to show that it's like very often it does require trial and error. For sure. (laughs) And it also requires, 
you know, better screening of farmers. So one of the things that we realized was that, you know, we need to make sure that the farmers we're working with are going to be willing to try something they haven't done before. And that's tough. You know, there's a lot of risk associated with trying something new. So, you know, you need to find what we call like in tech terms, the early adopters, right? And then make sure that those guys end up succeeding so that their friends can all say, hey, I want to do what he did. I want to get the success that he got. And how do you determine who can be an early adopter? Like, how do you screen for that? Well, (laughs) I think we've gotten better at it over time. Part of it is, you know, going to through the local leadership and traditional leaders and, you know, asking them for their sort of advice on who is trustworthy and, you know, who is a well-recognized and respected member of the community. And then part of it is through, you know, questionnaires that we've developed. So asking, you know, interview questions to these farmers, trying to create a quantitative way to score them. And then, you know, part of it is also seeing, you know, if there's any way to determine whether they have prior experience or not. But, you know, it's, it's part personality based, it's part sort of reputation based, and it's a little bit part income too. I mean, the ones that are super, super, super poor are probably going to be much more risk averse than somebody who has a little bit of a cushion or is making, you know, a little bit of money that this trying something new and failing won't devastate them and devastate their families. So it's a little bit of, you know, sort of trying to understand their income levels as well. Not to say that we don't work with the poorest of the poor farmers, but they wouldn't necessarily be our early adopters. Right. And you once tweeted something that really intrigued me. You said... Oh, no. (laughs) What did I say? (laughs) You once wrote, I've always been told to be impatient for profit, not scale. What did you mean by that? Well, that's, you know, something that we're facing right now. But the, you know, the challenge is, you know, a lot of the aid organizations or a lot of the impact investors, you know, they want to see us hit an impact of 10,000 farmers, for example, 10,000 seems to be a magic number in a lot of these worlds. And, you know, the challenge that I face is, well, okay, if I wanted to touch 10,000 lives, I could do that, but it wouldn't be in a way that was meaningful or sustainable, right? I could do a radio broadcast, I could you know, organize a lot of town meetings, probably three town meetings, I'd have at least talked to 10,000 farmers because these villages are three, 4,000 people, you know, strong. But that's not going to actually make a difference, right? And so I'd rather work intensively with 100 farmers than 10,000 farmers, but get them all to that 17% profit margin and get them all to really be making money than, you know, say I've hit 10,000 farmers, but the following year, you know, I'm nowhere to be found. And they haven't really gained anything sustainable or, you know, out of that interaction. That same idea can be applied to our own farm, you know, rather than, you know, being impatient and saying, I want to invest $8 million in a processing facility and get processing going and, you know, launch my brand and all this stuff. Instead, we're taking a step back and saying, you know what, we already have this farm. The farm is making operating margins, but the farm is, you know, not yet profitable. What's the minimum size that we can make the farm? What's the minimum amount of money that we can raise to make our farm profitable and then add processing as a layer on top of that? So it's almost like the same concept as like an MVP, right? The minimum viable product. And it's basically what's the least amount of money I need to raise? What's the least amount of people I can work with to prove that my model works to make myself profitable or to start generating cash? Mm. And so how many farmers do you have in your outgrower scheme right now? 
right now, this season we're doing, so we do tomatoes in the dry season and maize in the rainy season. This is our first time doing a maize outgrower program this summer. We are expecting to start harvesting, I think, in about three weeks time. In the maize program, we have, I believe, 43 farmers right now. Our goal for this coming tomato season is to farm somewhere between 15 to 20 hectares of outgrowers and model farmers who are the farmers that farm on our land. And that would probably end up being about 60 to 80 farmers. One of the other goals that we have that I haven't mentioned is that over time, we would like to see the average land size increase in the farmers in our program. So I don't want to be in a position where five years from now, I'm working with 5,000 farmers, but they're each on a quarter hectare of land. I'd rather work with farmers who are, you know, able to increase their land holding from a quarter hectare to two hectares or three hectares because they're earning that money and they're able to reinvest it in larger farms. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah. That's another thing that a lot of the sort of social investors end up missing out on. They say, you know, they have this, I would call it a nostalgic but incorrect idea that, you know, there's a romance in small farming. I'm like, well, it's really hard to get yield increases at such small levels because you, you know, it's inefficient to hire a tractor. There's a lot of mechanization. There's a lot of things like investing in drip irrigation and stuff like that, that are much more expensive on a per hectare basis at a quarter hectare than they are at five hectares. And so if you can work with farmers or farmer groups to increase the continuous amount of land that they have under their control, they can actually start making much, much greater gains in efficiency. And when do you expect that you'll start processing? Well, if a few things line up, we may be able to do some brand testing this year. But, you know, I'm very fortunate that my investors are patient with me on that front. And they understand you know, sort of, and have also guided me in the direction that I'm going in terms of saying, look, why don't you get the farming to be profitable on its own first and not worry about the processing yet? We know that's going to come. We know that's your end goal, but get this thing to work before you sort of take on, like you said, like a whole new business unit. So if we're able to sort of dedicate a few resources to the processing this season, we may be able to start doing some market testing in and around Kaduna. Probably wouldn't launch, you know, nationwide or anything like that, but might do a little bit of testing in Kaduna, a little bit of testing in Lagos. And then hopefully in 2020, that would be a year for a much larger push and a bigger launch and a sort of a more commercial launch of the product. Yeah, because it seems to me that you've adopted kind of a completely different approach than, say, Dangote, who focused so much on like building the factory and investing in processing. And then it turned out that he had zero supply of tomatoes. Correct. And that's why that tomato factory still sort of sits idle to this day, because he hasn't been able to get the raw material required to turn it on. You know, we thought about trying to sell our tomatoes to Dangote or trying to sort of see if we could pay a toll processing fee and say, hey, can you process for us? And, you know, we'll pay you for the use of your facility. But his factory, even though it's very small on global standards, is so big that this year with our, you know, let's say we have 80 farmers farming tomatoes for us, then we have, you know, our own field, which is another maybe 10, 15 hectares of tomatoes. So even if we had like 30 hectares of 35 hectares of tomatoes, that would only be about a one to two day supply at his factory. And so that's not enough for him to turn on the facility, open up the steam lines, you know, put all this money in, bring all these daily laborers into the factory, train them and everything else just to do a two day production run. And so he faces that challenge quite acutely. Mm, yeah. No, and it's so encouraging too to hear that your investors have been so supportive in focusing on the farming, which is really the cornerstone of what you're doing. Yeah, 
It is. I mean, it's disappointing because at the end of the day, I think what people want to see, what I want is, and where the real value is in the processing and also in the brand, which we haven't even really talked about. But, you know, I know that the brand and the production has to be supported by the raw materials. So we see this as a necessary step, but we hope that as the years go by, as we can start to increase, you know, the farming capability of farmers across the region, we don't have to focus as much on the farming and we can really become a processing and branding company. Hmm. Well, and on that note, let's talk about the branding because you picked a really awesome name for your company. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's very creative and really speaks to local slang. So could you, for our listeners maybe who do not get the hidden meaning of Tomato Joss, like what went behind the branding? Why did you pick that name? Sure. So, well, Tomato Joss is a... A slang term, I think in Igbo culture for, you know, a nickname for your girlfriend or for a girl that you think is really cute because, you know, Joss is a city in Nigeria, first of all, for those of, you know, those listeners who are not Nigerian. It's not Joe's, which a lot of people think I just misspelled tomato Joe's. But no, so Joss is a city in Nigeria. It's known for vegetable production. It's known for tomato production. It has a different climate than the rest of the country. So it's able to produce a little bit colder weather crops. Um, The tomatoes from Joss fetch a premium in the Lagos markets because they're considered to be higher quality, more fleshy, more sweet, more ripe. And so by extension, because actually this is a fun fact, the eastern part of Nigeria or the Igbo part of Nigeria eats the most tomatoes per capita in the whole country. So they're really tomato crazy down there. And I think that that's part of the reason why this term tomato joss became coined as, you know, oh, this girl is so fresh. She's so sweet. She's a tomato joss, you know, and we I just love that. And I thought, you know, that's catchy. That's a very clearly Nigerian phrase. It's a very proudly Nigerian idea. And it squarely tells a story about my brand that says, hey, you know, high quality can be made in Nigeria, you know, by Nigerians for Nigerians. And so that was kind of the genesis of the brand. Mm. And kind of, I mean, I know this is maybe putting the cart before the horse, but like, what are your ideas for like furthering the brand in Nigeria? Like, how do you develop a local brand that really resonates with Nigerian consumers? Well, so I think there's a lot of fun things you can do. I mean, there's a lot of promotional stuff that we can do, a lot of media blitzes, online stuff, which clearly we love to do, as well as, you know, market interventions and market launches. One of my good friends in Lagos works for a a natural hair care company, and they did this really cool marketing thing where they did a model runway in like local Lagos markets. And they had these women, you know, basically do catwalks in the local market. And it just drew this huge crowd and this big attention and, you know, a lot of attention to the brand. They have a hair care brand that they were trying to basically increase from being sort of like a lower tier quality brand to sort of upping the quality and upping the cachet of the brand's name. And so they've been doing a lot of these really eye-catching different types of events in local areas around Lagos where women shop for hair products. We see the, you know, the capability of doing similar things like that. Everything from blind taste tests in the market to sort of, you know, promotion of the product through, you know, women cooking and sort of media spectacles and things like that. Nigeria a really great place to be able to do stuff like that. And so we're really looking forward to that in the future. Being an entrepreneur is hard enough, but Nigeria is a notoriously difficult business environment. And I'd love to know, how do you stay resilient? <laughs> That's a tough one. I think that, you know, in the past couple of years, I've been able to make friends with and find other similar people, which has been really helpful in terms of, you know, other entrepreneurs who are trying to do difficult things, other agricultural people, you know, 
and not just in Nigeria. I have a very good friend who's doing something similar in Cameroon. I have another friend who's doing like a waste collection and fertilizer business in Equatorial Guinea. So, you know, you kind of find your people and, you know, you pick them up when they're down and they pick you up when you're down. And because entrepreneurship can be quite lonely, you know, being able to celebrate somebody else's wins and know that they're celebrating yours really does help a lot. So my friendship with Afi, for example, is definitely something that, you know, helps on a daily basis for sure. I think other than that, you know, I've tried to make a much more concerted effort to maintain my connections with my family, with my friends. And now that I live in Kaduna, you know, trying to make friends with, you know, local people who live in towns that there are ways for me to sort of take a break from the work and do something else, you know, on a Friday evening or over the weekend that I don't become so consumed by my work that, you know, I live in it and sort of feel that that's all there is to me. So making sure that, you know, I take like I restarted running, I run marathons, I try to read a lot of books, I try and just do things that put me in a separate mindset from the work so that it doesn't end up consuming me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boundaries. So important. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Well, and I want to kind of touch a bit about your funding experience, because, you know, that's often such a huge, sometimes insurmountable problem that entrepreneurs can face, particularly in Africa. And if you could, you know, give us just some background on kind of your experience with raising funding and and how you keep the business going. Yeah, I mean, that's hard. And one of the things that we're trying to do now is with our next raise, we want to try and get to a place where we're profitable so that we don't have to keep chasing down money when when we're going to run out or something like that. And I think that that's very different from like the tech world or, you know, a lot of other places, you know, a lot of other sectors where there's no expectation that you're going to be profitable for the first X years. Nigerian investors, from my experience, really want to start getting a dividend or some kind of cash return back within often within the first six months of when you know they make their investment which is quite different from you know a venture capital mindset or even like a growth investment mindset and so that makes it really difficult if you're not a cash flow positive business already to sort of be able to promise cash returns you know unless you're using other people's equity to pay out you know your first investors so that's definitely been a limiting factor it's really important to figure out how to get to know quickly so i raised a little over 2 million dollars last year last may and i thought it would take maybe 4 or 5 months and ended up taking about a year and a half to raise that money <laughs> so yeah. it was quite difficult and you know a lot of it also was just not being able to get to know you know people feel bad when they don't want to invest and so they'll often sort of like drag you along or say maybe or you know and i found that actually it's just it's less painful for everybody if you can sort of know that they're not going to be a viable investor for you. And so I try to make it really easy and painless for people to back out, you know, even if we've started going through diligence or something like that, and they realize this isn't for them, or they're expecting higher returns, or, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, this isn't going to fit. We tried to make it a very easy process for investors to say, you know what, actually, I'm out, because then everybody's wasting less of their time. So that's definitely one thing I've learned. I think another thing is that, at least for me, one of the positives that I've seen with people who have invested in the business are, you know, communication about both good news and bad news. You know, we had a really, really terrible season this past year. We started farming late because we moved farms from Nasarawa to Kaduna State 
And we had a lot of delays in the building of our irrigation system. We had contractors fail us on multiple levels. Because I had been able to communicate with my investors for the most part as everything was happening, nobody was extremely surprised to see the poor results at the end of the season. I think owning the decisions that you have made that have caused either good things or bad things in the company to happen also is a you know a way to sort of instill investor confidence. It's tempting to pass the buck and say, you know, oh, the contractor was to blame for my delay in, you know, starting the farming season. But actually, at the time that I realized the contractor was not going to perform on time, I should have changed the contract and said, you know what, don't try and do this full 35 hectares, costing me a little bit more money, fine, but at least this 10 hectares will be ready in time. And I didn't make that choice. I didn't make that call. So own your own contribution to the good and bad things that happen, having a lot of transparency, obviously having audited returns and like things like that, having financial projections, having a clear story, being able to tell that clear story. Those are all really important things as well. Oh, well, that's great advice, you know, and I particularly like what you said about owning your own decisions and being accountable for them and communicating them. Yeah. Definitely. Sometimes you want to hide your head in the sand, but usually that ends up making it worse. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I've learned that as well (laughs) over time. And I want to transition a bit and talk more about your entrepreneurial journey and kind of the lessons learned from launching Tomato Joss. And I'd love to know what has been the biggest failure in your career as an entrepreneur and what have you learned from it? I think one of the early you know, I think was in in team selection and in trying to understand what skill sets. And I still make this mistake. I think it's a hard one is, you know, you never want to hire out of desperation. You want to hire because the right person is there for the right role. And so first and foremost, that means you have to understand what your needs are. And I think that I have on multiple occasions not really well enough understood what I needed in terms of a skill set or a person or an asset. And if you don't have a clear idea of what it is that you need, then you're going to go out there and not pick what you need because you're not measuring the right characteristics. You know, I've certainly made that mistake with people and I've made that mistake with, you know, asset purchases as well. And people and assets right now are the biggest expenses we have in the company. So, you know, really being judicious about spending money and I think being willing to let other balls drop so that you can make those bigger, longer term choices has also been hard for me. I'm very much a doer and it's hard to sit back and manage and, you know, let the people that you've hired start to make decisions for you and start to execute for you. You know, why have you hired somebody if you're not willing to let them take responsibility, right? And so I think that because my own management experience was somewhat limited, I had been, you know, in charge of a team at Chai, but it was a team of, you know, highly educated consultant type of people who were very similar to me, you know, it was a hard transition. It was hard for me to learn, you know, and it's really hard for me to learn how to be an effective manager and how to be an inspiring manager. If you could go anywhere else in sub-Saharan Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? Gosh, that's a really great question. I think it depends on what part of the business I would want to focus on. I think from an agronomy standpoint, I wouldn't necessarily look to sub-Saharan Africa for learning. But if it was, you know, about team development and business, you know, development, I would probably want to do a little bit of research in Ghana. Ghana's 
very similar to Nigeria in a lot of ways. I think culturally it's pretty similar. And, you know, in terms of the marketing and branding and things like that, I think that the consumers have a very similar sort of type of point of view. And so I think that in potentially in a smaller market, it might be easier to learn about marketing and easier to learn about, you know, some of those elements of the business that we haven't already done. If I wanted to learn about sort of, let's say, how to improve my, you know, abilities to overcome difficult infrastructure challenges, or, you know, the challenges of like a fragmentation of a market and fragmentation of information and stuff, I'd probably want to learn from like a company that's operating in DRC or somewhere that's even like less functional than Nigeria and just be like, okay, you guys are able to actually run trucks, like let's say Coca-Cola in DRC or like the beer company in DRC, you know, how are they able to effectively brand and effectively move their product around the country, despite the fact that roads are really bad? And, you know, security is a big issue. So probably, you know, if if it's one step up, I'd want to look in Ghana. If it's like one step down, I'd want to look in DRC and just say, how are you guys solving problems in your environment? Oh, that's a great nuanced response. I love that. Thanks. (laughs) Which books have left an impression on you recently? So on the note of DRC, this book that I just finished reading. So I read a lot of fiction because I feel like the real world is hard enough. And I actually think that fiction can be the place of a lot of truth, even though, you know, it might be disguised in a story. But one book that I read recently that I really, really loved was called Abandon the River by V.S. Naipaul who is a, I think he won the Pulitzer Prize for another one of his novels. This one is set in an undisclosed country in Africa. And it's a story of a man of Indian descent originally, who's from the eastern part of Africa, who moves into what I think is probably one of the Congos, but doesn't ever say. And sort of his life as a traitor there and how the town kind of builds up and goes down and how politics affect the town. And it's just a really beautiful book. I think there's a lot in there about, you know, these other populations who have lived, you know, on the continent for generations, but never really will be a part of it in the same way as somebody who's actually, you know, truly native from whatever country. I have a lot of Lebanese friends and a lot of, you know, friends of Indian origin who live in Nigeria or in Kenya or Uganda. And it's interesting to sort of draw parallels between their lives and the life of the main character in this book. The second book that I'm really excited to start reading, but I haven't yet, is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And just in the era of, you know, Trump and populism and people having super clear you know, if you're not with us, you're against us mentalities and having this idea that, you know, if you don't agree with me, you must be the devil. I see, you know, more and more of that way of thinking in the US as well as in Nigeria, we're coming up on an election year. And there's been a huge amount of like APC, PDP stuff going on and very clear lines in the sand drawn. And I'm really interested to read this book because everybody who's read it, you know, has spoken so highly of it to help us understand, you know, how and why we entrench ourselves into these belief systems and, you know, why the more facts we're faced with, the more it makes us dig down into our belief systems. So I'm really excited to sort of dig into that book over the next couple of weeks. Oh, that sounds like a great read. I'm going to check that out. I think I need to read that as well. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring entrepreneur in sub-Saharan Africa, what would it be? I think it would be to try to start testing out your hypotheses 
like as soon as you can, whether that means you're doing stuff on nights and weekends while you still have a day job um, or whether that means, you know, you're quitting and starting right away. But I think start small, but start right away. You know, don't say, okay, the first thing I do is going to be a thousand hectare project or, you know, a five megawatt, you know, whatever power facility or something, but just start by saying, I'm going to buy one solar panel and figure out how it works. Or I'm going to do like, you know, one half an acre farm on the weekends and understand sort of what the mechanisms and levers actually are. I think that the faster you start actually doing stuff, the more you're going to learn and the more educated you're going to make yourself, but don't bite off more than you can chew. Do something that's manageable. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, in Mira, where can our listeners find you on social media? What's the best way to get in touch so, with you? So we're on Twitter at Team Tomato Joss. I'm on Twitter at Shouts at Mira's. Team Tomato Joss is also our Instagram handle. We do have a website that's terribly outdated, but we're trying to get back on track with blogs and things like that. The website is www.tomatojoss.net. You can always email us at info at tomatojoss.net. And, you know, we do post job openings on our website. We will continue to do blogs. We will start doing blogs again over the next few months, hopefully. And yeah, we're pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I loved uh, your blog posts. They were so incredibly informative. (laughs) Thanks. We'll get back on it. Yeah, and entertaining too, I'd like to add. Well, Mira, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Victoria. It was great to be on again. And hopefully this was helpful for all your listeners. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.